the experience of confusion and ignorance as being the wilderness of the heart. And when we use the word ignorance in the Buddhist tradition, we don't use it the same way that that word is used in the West, where it's often used as a kind of insult. You know, we say to someone, you're so ignorant. Or, or in the Buddhist tradition, ignorance is also not used in the way of, of implying a kind of absence of knowledge. But ignorance in the Buddhist tradition is much more describing not understanding what is true or being separated or divorced from understanding what is true in ourselves in life. The Buddha described the wilderness of the heart as being filled with feelings of isolation and insecurity, with our feelings of alienation and fear, Describe the wilderness of the heart also being the sorrow that comes when in those times when we feel uncertain about our path in life or in those times when we feel distrustful of life or of others. And he describes how all of those feelings of that wilderness of the heart really give fuel to the forces of anger, of negativity, of craving and grasping, and to sometimes the feelings of powerlessness or futility or meaninglessness. Meaninglessness. Being lost in the wilderness of those feelings and all of the agitation and the anxiety that they can produce in the Buddhist tradition, this is called samsara. A kind of perpetual wandering as if in a dream, not feeling truly at home anywhere, but instead being bound to a kind of wheel of unease that is constantly being made more complex and constantly being spun by the forces of confusion and fear and delusion. Yet when the Buddha talks about the wilderness of the heart and the wheel of samsara, it's not a teaching which is, you know, somehow trying to encourage us, encourage us to be filled with feelings of despair and hopelessness. You know, the Buddha never said, you know, this is a path of misery and the pursuit of more misery and suffering. When he speaks about the wilderness of the heart, it's also not in any way to try and deny the very real possibilities of joy and happiness and freedom, but to see and to begin to understand the way that we are mostly unconsciously our own jailers, and that we spin this wheel of confusion or this tangle of confusion only as long as not, we have not found a way to really step off the wheel, or as long as we haven't found the path out of the wilderness. And I'd like to put that, use a different analogy for that wilderness of the heart and the experience of it. Put it in a different context. Probably all of you at some time have gone hiking or walking in the woods, in the wilderness. 
Imagine if you were going hiking in the wilderness and you set off on that journey and perhaps you were already in that point of setting off, already unaware. That you set off without paying attention for a whole variety of different reasons. I mean, you may set off on that journey, you just feel very distracted or fragmented. You know, maybe when you set off on that journey, you, you were kind of filled with daydreams about, you know, maybe what an enlightening afternoon you were going to have on your cushion or, you know, the wonderful place you were going to reach when you first arrived. Maybe you were distracted when you set off on that journey because you'd, you were just coming out of some uncomfortable encounter. You know, maybe you'd embarrassed yourself at lunch or you said something that you felt embarrassed about. Or maybe you were distracted and a little bit disconnected because you set out on that journey already filled with a lot of ambitiousness, you know, about how far you were going to go and how much you were going to accomplish on that walk. So perhaps if we set out on that journey already a little distracted, a little unaware, that we would go into the woods and perhaps if we went a little bit deeper into the woods and into the wilderness, wilderness, we would suddenly realize that the landscape looked really unfamiliar to us. And we would realize perhaps suddenly that we were lost. Now that experience of feeling lost in this unfamiliar landscape would quite possibly bring with it Feelings of being unsafe, feelings of being very vulnerable. And so that in those feelings of being unsafe or vulnerable, even if we heard, you know, small creatures in the undergrowth or, or, or animals rustling in the branches of the trees, we would interpret them as being dangerous. We might interpret them as being some kind of threat to us. We would perhaps in those feelings of vulnerability and loss perhaps feel alienated, as if we were isolated in an unfriendly world. And within that, we might also find ourselves in that fearfulness, also blaming ourselves. You know, it's our fault. We should have been more aware. We shouldn't have been so distracted. We should have been paying attention. Now, in those feelings of being unsafe or being vulnerable, being lost, what often happens is that the wilderness becomes an opponent. It becomes an enemy, something to fear. And often what happens for us in our life is when we are fearful or we feel unsafe, we start to lash out blindly. You know, we, we, we react with panic or anxiety and we start to lash out blindly. And if we were to do that in the wilderness, what often would happen for us is that we would find ourselves increasingly caught, of course, in all of the brambles and all of the nettles and all of the thistles and the thorns of the undergrowth. You ever done that here? You go out in the garden, you know, and you get one thorn in your clothes. You know, try and lash out wildly to get away. You get more and more stuck. Now, what would happen that instead of lashing out blindly and panicking and reacting, what would happen if we were able to stand still in the wilderness and to let it speak to us, 
Perhaps if we were able to do that, we might begin to see the faint tracks of a path near to us. We might begin to see the way that the sun shone through the trees in a way that could guide us. We might even see that there's signposts telling us the way that we're going or the way to safety. In those moments of reconnecting and beginning to feel that connection once more with the earth and with where we are, of course the forest would no longer be an enemy to us. They would come with that, a sense of trust and confidence, and also with that too, an appreciation for the beauty of the woods. We would hear the same sounds of the rustling in the undergrowth or in the branches of the trees, but instead of being a danger, we would be able to listen and welcome them with sensitivity. And that moment would be transformed. There are times, I think, in our meditation when we turn our attention inwardly or we turn our attention to our lives and we can feel at times that we are living in a world which is not entirely of our own making. That we inhabit seemingly without choices. And if we were all to reflect upon our lives and upon our meditation and we were to make a wish list, a wish list for our lives, a wish list for our relationships, a wish list for our meditation, what would it look like? I mean, most of us would probably find ourselves wishing for happiness, wishing to have a true sense of meaning and direction, we would probably find ourselves wishing for honesty and trust and integrity. We might find ourselves wishing for calmness and well-being and peace. We might wish for authenticity and freedom, for depth and trust in our relationships. If we were to bring that wish list into our meditation, we would probably all say that we would wish that our times of meditation were times of connectedness, of clarity, of depth, of wisdom, of understanding. Now, this wish list that often we do have is very frequently in a kind of debate, sometimes even an argument, with the reality of our experience. We do at times find that the wilderness that we encounter sometimes within ourselves extends itself to be the wilderness of our life. Instead of having life order itself according to our wish list, we may instead find that events and thoughts and feelings and experiences often seem chaotic, sometimes even seem random we can find ourselves ending up in very dramatic places of distress and struggle. And we don't quite know how we got there. We say, how did that happen? We can get lost in struggle and judgment and blame and shame. And we don't know how we got there. Do we choose it? I mean, do we ever, ever come into a sitting and think, oh, you know, this is really a good hour for anguish and conflict. 
mostly not. You know, do we ever get up in the morning and say, it's a great day for a version. You know, it's what I'm going to do today is a version. Mostly not. There are times when we can find ourselves seemingly in the space of moments, embroiled in state, incredible states of, of rage or negativity or jealousy, or we can be lost for hours, wandering in some complex mind storm. And those moments often feel like a kind of wilderness that we don't know the clear way out of to happiness or to peace or to freedom. When we feel lost in that wilderness within ourselves or within our lives, we also do feel, I think, vulnerable and unsafe and uncertain. It's a time when our personal world feels very contracted, very narrow, sometimes very oppressive. Now, what is it that we find disturbing about this wilderness of heart and mind? One aspect that disturbs us about this wilderness is how very unpredictable it is, how we can't seem to predict or to guarantee what thoughts or what feelings or what mental state is going to visit us next. You know, we can be sitting and filled with feelings of heaviness or despair, and suddenly they lift. And they're replaced by spaciousness and lightness, and we would love to know how we did that. We would love to know how we did that, and yet we can't figure it out. Of course, the reverse or the inverse of that is that we can be sitting and have a couple of hours a fantastic calm and a happiness and you know quickly the thoughts arise of you know well oh finally all that angst is over you know i made it i'm through the wilderness i finally got there and no sooner do we have the thoughts than we're ambushed by some furious and intense attack of obsessiveness or dwelling or anxiety seems we simply really hardly know what is going to come next. And that unpredictability can make us feel as if there is really no place of certainty and safety, no true refuge that we can really rest on, rest in, in our lives. Life, of course, very much resembles the unpredictable, unpredictability of our inner world. When we are faced with the seemingly uncontrollable aspects of any wilderness, then of course the wilderness also feels very much more powerful, very much bigger than we are ourselves. Another aspect, I think, of the wilderness, of our inner wilderness that so often disturbs us, is its essential disobedience to our witches and to our will. We want to be loving. You know, we get up in the morning and we say, I want to be loving, I want to be caring, I want to be sensitive. You know, and maybe in that we might, we might resolve to let go of the anger or the resentment that we've, you know, had towards someone here, perhaps, or someone in our lives. 
And, you know, the resolution can feel really clear and determined. And then we meet that person. And suddenly it seems like that resolution is some kind of distant memory and we're swamped by the same feelings and the same thoughts that we thought and felt a thousand times before. You know, you may go to a group determined not to fall into the same patterns of dominating or self-consciousness or, you know, blurting things out. And no sooner do we sit down in the group with that resolution and we open our mouth, there it is again. Same old story, reenacting the same old and familiar dances. You know, we can determine, you know, determine with good intention not to participate in perhaps habitual patterns of, of greed or fantasy or judgment. And then, you know, somehow, just by accident, there we are again, first in the lunch line, you know, or, you know, sitting on our cushion again, just slipping into these juicy daydreams. Because the disobedience of this inner wilderness can be pretty disturbing. Seen differently, I mean, those moments of disobedience could also be seen as being real moments of enlightenment. I mean, clearly what is happening in, that, in those moments is not me. We didn't choose them, we didn't intend them, we didn't, you know, place ourselves consciously in any of those experiences. They just happened. Sadly, we rarely see those moments of disobedience and being lost in such an enlightened way. Instead, we, we tend to find that being lost in those moments of disobedience kind of evokes even more strong patterns of saying, this is not what I want, this is not what should be happening, I need to be different. Another aspect of the inner wilderness that does disturb us deeply, deeply, I mean, does lie in the feelings of powerlessness that can arise, that accompany this sense of being lost. We can feel so hopeless sometimes, you know. You know, when we see ourselves, you know, sometimes for years, you know, going through familiar patterns of being judgmental or greedy or defensive, you know, we can feel like yeah, everything's impermanent except my own habit patterns. And we can feel so stuck and entangled. In those moments of feeling, of course, powerless and lost, we do the same, we are tempted to do the same things as if we were lost in a wilderness of a forest. We're tempted to lash out blindly, to panic, to reject, to to become agitated. And then we feel even more entangled. Another aspect of our wilderness that does disturb us is its repetitive nature. We have really a few very familiar visitors in our lives, in our minds and hearts. And we do often find ourselves wondering how many times are we going to revisit these familiar places of aversion or self-consciousness or blame or despair before they finally dis disappear? 
sometimes the very repetitive nature of those patterns makes us more impatient or reactive. Uh, and we can even be convinced that there's something else we need to learn. You know, there's some vital piece of information, you know, probably given in that sitting that I missed that is really the key, you know, to making this finally go away. So sometimes when we find those familiar patterns returning, you know, we poke at them and we prod at them, you know, and we nudge them and we wrestle with them, trying to figure out where they come from and why they are there. And then sometimes the analogy is a little bit like, you know, if, if you had a, you know, a ring that was really precious to you and you dropped it in the fish pond, and, you know, in your desperation to find it, maybe you took up a stick and you started stirring the pond looking for it, actually what you get is a lot of mud, not the ring that you're seeking for. The same sometimes when we poke and prod sometimes and stir too much, these very familiar patterns, we don't always find that magical piece of enlightenment. Instead, often what happens for us, of course, is that we get very tired and exhausted. We certainly experience this on retreats, don't you? You know, you find yourself nine o'clock at night, you know, I mean, really nine o'clock at night is pretty early, actually pretty early. You know, hardly able to keep our eyes open, you know, stumbling into bed, you know, feeling so exhausted and so tired and needing to recover. Recover from what? I mean, it's not like we're exactly running marathons here, you know. I mean, most of the day we kind of spend sitting around, you know, and occasionally we get up and we toddle around a little bit, you know, pretty slowly, and then we come and we sit around some more. Oh, we're so tired. You know, we're just so tired. And the exhaustion is very real. You know, it's not like we're just making it up or pretending. Sometimes the feelings of tiredness are very real. And sometimes they come from struggling and thinking and wrestling and lashing out wildly. And sometimes they come from all of the agitation that comes with this feeling of being lost. What would happen if you didn't take a stick to the fish pond and stir up the mud, but instead let the waters calm and just look really simply and really clearly? it's far more likely that what we're looking for would actually be revealed to us. There's a wonderful <coughs> poem I'd like to read you from Lao Tzu. So, so the ancient masters were profound and subtle. Their wisdom was unfathomable. There's no way to describe it. All we can describe is their appearance. They were careful as someone crossing an ice-over stream, alert as a warrior in enemy territory, courteous as a guest, fluid as melting ice, shapeable as a block of wood, receptive as a valley, clear as a glass of water. Do you have the patience to wait till your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving until the right action arises by itself? The master doesn't seek fulfillment, not seeking, not expecting. She is present, 
and can welcome all things. As in this remarkable patience and stillness is part of the picture and one aspect of finding our way out of the wilderness. But there's also the part of really needing to understand our own wilderness, an understanding that is really founded upon an extraordinary patience and inner listening. Part of that understanding is needing to let go of treating the wilderness as an enemy. It's really only an enemy as long as we're not truly listening. It's really only an enemy as long as we feel lost and powerless. In reality, every wilderness has its own beauty that can touch and transform us if we don't fight it, if we can learn deeply the lessons of sensitivity, of receptivity. There's no wilderness that is only made up of grand trees, wonderful wildlife, budding plants. Every wilderness also has its share of nettles and thistles and brambles. They're also part of our own landscape. When we speak of the suffering of being lost in the wilderness, we're not speaking about that part of our own wilderness that touches us and enriches us, that brings joy and delight. We very rarely have ever complained about moments of generosity and compassion. We very rarely say, you know, it's too much uh, loving kindness. You know, I really need to let go of my sensitivity. When we speak of the pain of the wilderness, we are mostly speaking of those places that we all touch upon. The places of difficult feelings, difficult patterns, difficult states of mind. They, because they are our own brambles and our own nettles and thistles that catch us, they're the ones, the parts of our being that we find difficult to be with that bring pain to us or that leave behind them after they've appeared residues of, you know, blame or regret or judgment. And it's those difficult feelings, the difficult feelings and thoughts that the part of ourselves that we really seek to change, to transform and to find freedom within. When we first turn our attention inwardly to explore our own wilderness, it can feel very complex, like a real maze of so many different patterns and feelings and mind states that move us, or so many different ways that we get lost or overwhelmed. But when we pay attention more closely, and also we begin to calm down, most of us find that within our own inner world that we carry with us some recurring themes, repeat visitors, we might call them, places or states of experience or images or feelings or reactions that are sticky, 
drastically, that they repeat themselves, that visit us over and over again. Now, in the Buddhist tradition, these places, or these patterns of mind, these inclinations of mind, are called sankharas, formations. They are formations. Sometimes they're called underlying tendencies, but really sankharas are formations. These inclinations of mind that appear, some of which repeat themselves. Now these sankharas, or formations or inclinations of mind, they're not static, solid states of experience. But instead these formations shape the way that we receive ourselves and the way that we respond to the world around us. These inclinations or formations shape how we speak, how we think, how we feel, how we react. For example, take the formation of the sankhara of anger as an example. It leads us to see and to respond to the world and ourselves in a particular way, just as a sankhara or an inclination of greed or fear would lead us to respond to the world and to ourselves in a particular way. Loving-kindness is also a sankhara. Mindfulness is a sankhara. So sankharas are not always just talking about what is negative or difficult. Sankharas can actually also be very healing and liberating, such as the sankhara of attentiveness, of mindfulness that we cultivate here. What is the important part about formations, of course, is to really understand that they are fluid, they are changing. Some sankharas become well-worn grooves in our psyche or in our consciousness because of experiences in the past or experiences in the present or because of misunderstanding. It's like if you had a walking path out in the lawn here and you kept going back to the same walking path and walking there hour after hour. Well, pretty soon you would actually start to shape the landscape in a particular way. You know, that walking path would be visible. You would see it. Now, if you kept going back to the walking path, that same walking path, That walking path would be more than just a track in the grass, wouldn't it? It would start to become a groove. And if you kept walking on it, it might even become a ditch that you would fall in. Now take the sankhara of anger. If for a variety of reasons we become very familiar with the response of anger, doesn't it become more available, more readily available to us? You know, it becomes almost automatic in a whole variety of different situations. We find ourselves, if that's the sankhara that's very well-worn for us, we find ourselves very easily disturbed. One of the realities that happens in our life, we become very easily disturbed. I mean, you know, it might be like here. It becomes actually the shape of our mind. The more we entertain it, the more that it actually shapes our mind and heart. 
you know, say you're here, you know, and anger happens to be your most familiar sankara. Well, what would happen, of course, you would probably find yourself going to the house, you know, sort of being critical of everything, you know, about how lunch wasn't enough of that, you know, and we should have the notice board in a different place, and that person's walking too loudly, and, you know, and that person hasn't got the right kind of socks on, and when I sit, you know, my cushion doesn't feel quite right. How would you be visiting that Sankara Ranga? It would be, it could be a totally different Sankara, like self-consciousness. You know, that might be our Sankara of choice. You know, where everything, you know, where we go through the house thinking, oh, you know, everybody's looking at me. I wonder if I'm walking right. I wonder if I'm sitting right. You know, if we drop our fork at lunchtime, it becomes a major disaster. You know, if we see a sign on the notice board saying, you know, please don't wear perfumes, we start smelling our hands, you know, it must be me, you know. It becomes a kind of familiar resting place, almost automatic. Now, the shape of our mind and heart shapes our responses, it shapes our actions, it shapes our choices, our thoughts and feelings. You know, it could be greed, you know, greed could be the one, you know, and then we would be going to, you know, I haven't got the right room, I haven't got the right bed, you know, I need to change my room, I need to have that kind of plate, I need that particular cup. They make return visits. We've, you've probably already noticed here your own particular sankharas. It, sometimes they surprise us, most often they don't surprise us. This is not news. But they make return visits. We dwell upon them and ponder upon them. And so the inclinations through dwelling and through pondering, through returning, they become more solid. And that's the place where we start to feel stuck and powerless. We want to be different. We would love to be free from this sankara. We'd love to have different thoughts. You know, we'd love to have, be, have a different kind of mind. You know, we'd love to be, instead of being an aversive type, we'd love to be a meta type, you know. And yet we can feel so stuck. Because we can't necessarily just have different thoughts or responses. Because the thoughts and responses we have are related the inclinations, the sankharas that lie behind those thoughts and feelings. You know, it's like if you had a square ice cube tray and you wanted to make round ice cubes. You know, no matter how many times you poured the water in the square ice cube tray, you're not going to get round ice cubes. You're going to keep getting square ice cubes, you know, because that is the shape of the container. That's the shape of the tray. These areas where we feel so stuck, they're the areas that really invite exploration, investigation, patience, understanding. First, we need to acknowledge that those places of feeling stuck are actually places of suffering. Because if we don't acknowledge them as places of suffering, sometimes we're really not willing to let go of them. Or sometimes we have an ambivalent relationship to letting go. You know, say, for example, with anger, we might say, I'd really like to be able to let go of anger, except if I let go of anger, that person might get away with something. <laughs> or I might become a sort of doormat. So maybe I better hold on to some of that anger. This is not in the list of choices. 
you know, it, it's a package deal. You don't get to hold on to some of the anger some of the time. You get to hold it on to the anger most of the time. Or it's like with greed. Then we say, oh, I'd really love to be a generous person. I'd really like to let go of the greed. But it sure tastes good, that second plate of lunch, even though I don't really need it, you know. Or if I let go of greed, I might lose, you know, something that's really precious to me. So sometimes we can have this very ambivalent relationship, and I think it is important for us to understand that you really can't negotiate with samsara. You really can't make deals and say, you know, I have a little bit sometimes and not the rest the other times. Because there needs to be actually a wholeheartedness in our acknowledgement of what is suffering and what is freedom. We let go of these difficult and stuck and sticky places in ourselves, not in order to punish or terrorize ourselves or to make ourselves suffer. We let go because that's the way to happiness and that that's the way to freedom. The Buddha spoke about a number of different ways of actually working with these sankharas, these places of stickiness. They're not strategies or prescriptions, but they are things, ways of working with them that we might like to reflect upon and to see the ways in which actually they might be useful for us. One way is to, when we are in the grip, say, of a very sticky formation, you know, like greed or defensiveness or anger, we might reflect on what is missing in those moments. What's absent? You know, say in the midst of being really stuck in anger, it might be loving-kindness that feels to be really missing. And the Buddha spoke about in those moments of reflecting of what is absent, to cultivate that which is absent. So it might mean instead of just choosing the pathway of, you know, shouting at ourselves or shouting at the world, what difference would it make to say, say, may you be happy? May I be happy? not a magical transformation, but it certainly makes us pause for a moment. Sometimes it just makes us step back a little bit from being so entangled. It means that we're really not consenting to be so, so dwelling in those states, not because those states are bad or wrong, but because they lead to suffering. The Buddha spoke about wise avoidance. Wise avoidance. If we see looming up before us some really familiar pathway that we've been down a thousand times before, you know, it might be the pathway of judgment, or it might be the pathway of blame, or it might be the pathway of fantasy, we may actually acknowledge in those moments that we've learned what we need to learn down that route and that we don't need to learn anymore down there. And that it might be helpful for us to actually take our attention elsewhere. It's like choosing not to fall in the ditch. You know, it's like if you're going in your walking path. It may be kind of foolish if you saw a ditch in front of you. Say, I'll just fall in here, you know. I mean, you know, most of us will not make those choices. You know, we know that there are consequences. Similarly, you know, wise avoidance is just sometimes choosing not to fall in the ditch. 
So sometimes we do take our attention also. We take our attention perhaps instead of fantasy to listening to our bodies, to being connected. Wise avoidance. The Buddha spoke about the pathway of restraint. You know, if we see ourselves about to jump into the ditch willingly, sometimes that happens because we might find some strange satisfaction in jumping in the ditch. We might find ourselves about to jump into agitation. You know, we get up from a sitting, we feel a little jumpy, a little antsy, and we think, ah, you know, I'm going to go check out the notice board. You know, maybe there's something neat up there for a change, you know, or, you know, maybe they've got some kind of new tea out, you know, on the table. We see ourselves about to do it. We spoke about that wise restraint. Wise restraint. It might even be in the kind of the flow of judgment. We see ourselves about to jump into some great tirade against some other person. We might just say, do I really need to be doing this? You know, does it serve me well? Am I actually choosing freedom? Or am I choosing suffering? Wise restraint might come easily, more easily to us. He spoke about the cultivation of a very clear and conscious commitment to non-dwelling, to renunciation, to not engaging in patterns of suffering. It's about letting go, not just once, but many, many times. Spoke about the pathway of investigation to see deeply what is actually happening. Instead of saying, I'm like this, or you're like this, or this is who I am, and this is so solid, to begin to question, is that true? Is it really true? To see a thought as a thought, a feeling as a feeling. To begin to learn to take the mind out. We spoke about the pathway of asking for help. That sometimes when we are truly lost, it is important for us not to have that kind of heroic stance to say, I would do this all myself, but to reach out to ask for help. Any moment when we undertake any of those pathways, we're actually really not lost anymore. And the wilderness is not an enemy anymore. And we begin to grow in confidence and to feel like we're really walking a pathway. There's a poem I'd like to end with. It's called Lost. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are, it's called here. And you must treat it as a powerful presence. Must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest speaks, listen, it answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. We have just a couple of moments quietly together. <laughs> 